as you situate in your seats and as uh, certain kids make their way to the kids' area, uh, you, I want to tell you that you probably heard the saying that free advice is worth the price. Ever heard that? And I want to give you some advice. It's, just, it's so good, you're going to want to pay me for it, okay? You're going to want to throw money at me now or before you leave today. Here's the advice. You ready? You don't have to attend every argument that you're invited to, okay? Now, my wife's on the front row going, what are you saying, you big old hypocrite? Because for years in our marriage, I would, I would attend every invite. I'm like, wait, is that a, am I, I want to get in and I want to win, right? That's just, I'm kind of built that way. I've, I've got a, a quick wit. I mean, it's a blessing. It's a curse. I've never been in a situation where someone says something uh, to me or about me and, and I hear it and then I'm thinking, oh, I don't know what to say. I, I can't think of a comeback. That, I, don't, I got a lot of problems. That's not one of them. But I love, I have loved for years to attend arguments. But I'm, I'm telling you, it'll help you through the holidays. It'll help you through life. You do not have to attend every argument that you're invited to. Hey, church, we don't have to attend every argument that we're invited to. You know, we live in an adversarial culture. We live in a, a world of argumentation. And we get invited in and we seem to want to attend every one of them. Some of you have read, maybe been involved to some extent, been amused by it or messed up by it. But there's been a controversy far greater than the Syrian refugee controversy. It's the Starbucks Christmas time controversy, right? You guys, are, are you up on that? And evidently, as I understand it, that uh, Starbucks made a decision, a willful act to take off what snowflakes and reindeer off their red coffee cup this year and certain Christians uh, saw that as a war on Christmas and thus um, an attack on Christianity and they said hey we're going to jump into this thing and I, I, I thought about that I didn't post anything but I just thought you know here's kind of my perspective I imagine standing before God one day next to a row of martyrs and God asked me how were you persecuted you know Jesus was crucified Stephen was stoned. John the Baptist was beheaded. Paul was beaten, whipped, shipwrecked, and stoned. The early Christians were used, um, you know, as lights. They were, they were lit up in, in the night streets to, so Nero could race his chariot. Joan of Arc was burned at the stake. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was hung by the Nazis on the gallows. How were you persecuted? Well, I had to drink from a Starbucks Christmas cup without reindeer and snowflakes on it, right? We... We attend arguments that we get invited to, and we probably just should show restraint and let God give us perspective. Let the scripture help us in our narrative and mold us and shape us and to be an attractive people, a compelling people, as we're saying these weeks, a resilient people. Uh, you're invited, you've been invited and are being invited today in the next couple of weeks to live the resilient life. We've been looking at this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, this second letter. And in the letter, he says some wonderful things. He says some hard things. But he uses the language of resiliency. Remember what we've looked at? We've been afflicted on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We... We have this treasure in jars of clay. We're the container. We carry this. God uses people like me and you, just ordinary earthenware to carry the message with the treasure. The treasure is the good news of the gospel. Outwardly, we're wasting away. We have a fleshly tent. 
But God's building a home for us. Inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. The language of resiliency. Church, we don't have to attend every argument. And I, as I saw people fighting online this last couple of weeks, I, I thought, you know, is, did God commission Starbucks to carry the good news of the gospel? Or did he commission the church? Should we expect them to act that way or to know this? Or is it us? Is it the church that has been commissioned? And when we began to live as Jesus lived, when we become people of the way, as they were called in Acts, before they were called Christians in Antioch, they were called the people of the way, and they followed the way of the master teacher. They followed in his way. When we, when we learn to follow in that way, when we can be real people, because you see, what we got here is realness in Paul. Did you notice that? And I, think, I think for you and I, to be resilient people, we have to do what... He did. We have to say what we are and what we're not. Because right now, you know, you're going through something. All of you are. And there's something about you that's, I mean, you are this. This is happening. But you're not this. Are you going through something hard now? Just call it out. Not now necessarily, but, but call it out in your life and groan to the Lord. Don't grumble, but groan to the Lord and call it out for what it is. We're, we're afflicted on every side, but we're not crushed. You get it? We're, we're perplexed, right? We're, we're, we're struck down, but, but we're not destroyed. And the resilient life is one that calls out, hey, we are, I'm going through this. This is really happening. I don't have to file into church and sit in rows next to nice people and act like we're shiny, perfect, happy people. I can call it out. We are this. This is happening in my life. But look what's not happening. Because I've got a God who's sustaining me. This morning, rather than looking at several passages or a section of 2 Corinthians, I want us to look at this one simple passage, and it's right here. I'm going to put it up. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Leave that up just for a moment. And the word grief there is translated in many versions as sorrow or guilt. And I'm going, to, I'm going to choose to probably use the word guilt more than the word grief. It just rings a little more true in how we would express it. For godly guilt produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly guilt produces death. When I was growing up in church, we would sing a song that asked the question, what can wash away my sin? You guys sing that? Now, listen to me. I want you to finish that. Just finish. What's the next word? Not the next line, as important as that next line is, but what's the next word? What can wash away my sin? Some of you kept going. I ask you not to. <laughs> what can wash away my sin? Nothing. Nothing. But you know, we try everything. We try everything. Now, I get there's just some dumb stuff you've done, right? I, there's some dumb stuff you've done. Somebody's like, why are you looking at me? I should have done that. I, like, I look somebody right in the eye on the second row. There's some dumb stuff you've done. There's some dumb stuff you've done. There's some dumb stuff you're doing in the balcony right now, actually. No. we all done dumb stuff, right? 
And here's the thing about dumb stuff. We can just be sort of dismissive about dumb stuff because we get in groups and we start talking about the dumb stuff we've done. And a lot of times your dumb stuff, like you, you one-up me, your, your story trumps me, you know, and then we feel better about your dumb stuff. And then we have very popular phrases. We all use these. We've used them. We'll use them again. We look back at something that we've done and we don't think what can wash away my sin. We'd say things like, I was young. I was broke. I was drunk. I was angry. I was lonely. I didn't know any better. And it was just dumb stuff. And we sort of have an excuse and we dismiss it. We all do that. We've all done that. But there are some things, there's memories and images and associations and it hovers over us like a cloud and it haunts us and it is ghostly. And when we see that or hear that or go back there in our mind or drive by there or bump into that person, uh, we can't seem to dismiss it. And we're left with this hangover, if you will. I was talking to a friend, a very smart woman, earlier this week, and she said this phrase. I want to put it up. She said this phrase. There's a little revelation in every hangover. She's recently, my friend, celebrated seven-year sobriety. For three years, she's led a recovery program. She sort of knows what she's talking about. What a, what a remarkable statement. There's a little revelation in every hangover. After the shopping spree, there's the bill to pay. After the party, there's the mess to clean up. After the internet porn session, there's the bitter aftertaste. After the 12-pack of beer or the 26er of vodka. Y'all didn't think I knew that, right? After the 26er of vodka, there's the swirling churning molten stuff in your stomach but you got to pay the bill you got to clean up the mess you got to turn off the computer you got to face the world and there's just a little revelation in every hangover I'm using that word as she did I'm using it broadly hangover as in the aftermath the aftertaste as the the downside of the upside the unpleasant consequence and it's common to humanity I used to think when I was sort of cloistered and sheltered in my early upbringing that what can wash away my sins was just a, a question of of backwoods religious people but now I know now I'm resoundingly wholeheartedly convinced that it's a question that haunts all of us because we're human we're different we're different than even the animal kingdom. Do you watch the Animal Planet or Discovery Channel or National Geographic? And you see that nature, I mean, stay with me just for a moment, but nature's, it's cruel and murders and violent, non-remorseful. Have you ever watched on one of those channels, you ever watched the lion stalk the antelope? And the lion looks and he he surveys, and what's he looking for? He's looking for the old one, for the weak one, for the sick one, for the baby one. And he lunges, and he chomps down and obliterates this antelope. And the lion is not sitting there thinking, oh, man, I shouldn't have done that. I got the weak one, the old one, the little one, the sick one. Mm, the young one shouldn't have done that. No, I mean, he's chomping on the liver, right? I mean, he's going to town, and that is... In the animal kingdom, it's hard for us to watch that. But that's not us. 
You and I have been created with the image of our God. It's this phrase here. Imago Dei. That's within us. That's the image of God that is for us a constant companion. That has a built-in need to have clean hands and a pure heart. To ascend to the hill of the Lord and to know our creator. There's something in you that churns and says this is, this is not right. When you're experiencing that little revelation of the hangover. When you're experiencing the, up, the downside of the upside, the aftermath, the aftertaste, the unpleasant consequence. There's something in you saying, I, I, I don't want to be this way. I don't want to keep doing this. I don't want to experience this. I don't want to have this separation between me and others, between me and God. And it's this. Imago Dei, the image of God within you, and it separates us from the animal kingdom. We're the highest created order. If nothing makes you feel good today, let that. You're, you're among us. You're the, of the highest created order. Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, if you want to live a resilient life, you'll need to learn about guilt. Because some people, they don't get back up. Some people don't have the capacity to rebound. They don't have the ability to bounce back. They can't get up off the mat. When they're struck down, they are destroyed. But for you and I to be able to live the resilient life, we need to understand guilt. And Paul tells us clearly, we need to know this, there's good guilt and bad guilt. And what's the difference between the two? Good guilt is good because of what it produces. Bad guilt is bad because of what it produces. And what does good guilt produce? It produces what? Paul said it, 2 Corinthians 7.10. Produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly guilt, grief, sorrow, it produces death. You'll keep dying and dying and dying and dying if you just feel bad. You know anybody that can't, can't get over their sadness, can't deal with their remorse, bitterness or anger is eating them up, you will die and die and die because that's worldly. That's not from above. But there's a different kind of guilt. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, David, a young David, is up on his roof. And he looks over and he sees a woman bathing naked. Ladies, bring that inside, okay? Just bring that inside. And he sees her and he says to one of his servants, who is she? And the servant says, that is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. He says, bring her to me. And she's brought to him and they lie down together. She becomes pregnant. And David thinks, mm, what do I do? I feel guilty. It's sort of something's dying in me and other things could die because of how bad I feel. What do I do? Plan A. Every good strategist has a plan A, right? And you want plan A to work. It's, it's, your, it's your plan A. Plan A for him is he dispatches a letter to the battlefield and has a general summon Uriah home. His plan, according to 2 Samuel 11, is let's bring Uriah home because what does a soldier do when he comes home? He's, he's 
excited to be reunited with his wife. And some of us, some of you, you've watched on YouTube and all the public, one happened in Starkville at a, at a football game. I think it was the weekend before last. And there was a soldier coming out. Everybody's like cheering and crying. And just, it's, it's a great reunion. One happened in Chick-fil-A. It's got 5 million YouTube hits. Happened this week. A soldier comes home. There's a reuniting there. And the public part is a celebration. But there's the private part when a man and woman are eager to be back together to celebrate the good gift of sex in marriage. And David's plan A is like, that's going to happen. And when that happens, it'll be like, mm, that's it. He got her pregnant. I did it. I hid it. I covered it up. Uriah comes home as he's been summoned to do. But when he gets home, he said, I've made a vow to the king. What's the vow to the king? Uh, how about a soldier? By the way, in 2 Timothy 2, Paul tells Timothy, don't be... Um, don't be, as a soldier of Christ, don't be entangled in the worldly affairs. Like soldiers, uh, more so in ancient times, were committed. There was just this real resolute singularity of focus of I won't do anything until the battle is won. And that's what Uriah is saying. I made a vow. It was a meaningful vow that I would not touch my wife until I helped win the battle for the king. He refuses. So David goes to plan B. Plan B involves wine. Strong drink. The Bible tells us that David pops open the best wine. He gives it to Uriah and Uriah is drunk and wobbly and heads home to his wife and David's thinking, we got this, but Uriah refuses to go to his home. Instead, he hangs out on a friend's porch and says, I'm not going in. I've made a vow and I'm going to keep that. Plan C. David dispatches another letter to the general on the battlefield. He sent it by way of Uriah riding the horse. And the commission, the mandate was this. Put Uriah, bring him from the rear to the front in the most difficult battle. In the hardest battle, I want him on the front lines, which means what? He's dead. Uriah dies and David Make sort of a display, a spectacle of it. Woe is me, Uriah, King, he, Uriah died. What can I do to honor his life? Oh, I know. I'll take his wife. I'll marry her. And the moment, the moment, the minute we get married, she'll get pregnant. I did it. I hid it. I covered it up. Second Samuel chapter 12, a prophet, Nathan, comes to see David. He tells him a parable, a story. He says, there was a wealthy man who had a hundred sheep and there was a poor man next to him who had one little lamb trying to raise his family. They loved this little lamb. That He allowed the lamb to be almost like his very own daughter. He would put the lamb on his lap and pet her and care for her and it was a significant part of their family. A traveler came. Nathan tells David in this parable, a traveler came and needed a meal and a place to stay. And the wealthy man with a hundred sheep took that one lamb and had it killed for that traveler. And David, true to form, an emotional man, he reacts. Nathan's, what are we to do? David said, this man should be killed. He had no regard. And Nathan says to him, you're the man. You're the man. David should have known. He should have seen himself early enough in that story, but it caught him at the very end. And the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel 12 that David, he wept and he tore his clothes and he makes this 
confession, this, this display of his own guilt before God. And he says, against you alone have I sinned. That's not language that you and I would probably use today. And that's not to suggest that David was saying that I had not sinned against others, but he's saying what really matters is my God in heaven. Weeping and tearing of the clothes. Guilt is more than tissues and teardrops. Have you ever been there before where you cry and you say, I'm sorry, and you offer up an apology and it just seems so heartfelt, but nothing happens? It's why Paul is saying that this godly guilt, it produces repentance. And repentance is a word uh, in that, this text in 2 Corinthians. It's a Greek word, metanoia. The first part of this word, meta, uh, means our mind. It's your cognitive function and ability. And the second part of that word, noia, is the word that we would use for change. It's a, it's a changing of your mind. Let's say that we're on a road trip, me and you. And just, by the way, look at the person next to you, to the left or right. Just pick somebody and look at them. So there's three people on this road trip that's me and you and the person you just looked at. And the person you just looked at is in the back seat and you're riding passenger, you're riding shotgun. Your shotgun rider, as Tim McGraw sings, you're, you're next to me and we're on a long road trip and I'm driving. And on this road trip, the person you just looked at who's sitting in the back seat says, hey, RG, you're, you're going the wrong way. And I'm like, dude, you're wrong. I know what I'm doing here. And I drive and drive many more miles. And that person you just looked at that's sitting in the back seat says it again. I give basically the same response. Then you say it. And I give the same renouncement that I gave to the person you just looked at who's sitting in the back seat. But then in my mind, I began thinking because I've gone pretty far and I don't see things. I'm starting to see the wrong things. And I began to think I'm on the wrong road. But then I began to realize I'm on the wrong road. And then I stopped. And then I turn around in order to get on the right road. Now, according to the Greek definition, metanoia, changing of mind, which with the Greeks and the Romans, it always had to do, thinking always had to do with, with attitude and attitude to action. There wasn't a separation like we have for them so often. So let me ask you in our illustration, you're no longer in the car with me, okay? But let, just think with me now, think back with me. When did I repent? When did I experience or display metanoia? Was it when the person you looked at who's sitting in the back seat told me that I was going on the wrong road? Was it when that person told me the second time? Was it when you told me? Was it when I began to think that maybe to my shame and humiliation, y'all were right and I was wrong? Was it when I stopped? Was it when I turned around? And that's what Paul is saying for the resilient life, for the one who needs, who should, who is called to follow after Jesus, to stay in fellowship with him, is going to need this metanoia, this, this repentance, to understand the value of a change of mind. For godly guilt, what does it do? It produces this repentance. It produces it. That's the fruit of it. We'll see it in your life. If you're in Christ, we will see repentance 
be a part of your life. If repentance is not a part of your life, there's a good chance that you're not in Christ. Jesus taught fundamentally, we'll know you by your fruit. And Paul is saying godly guilt, it produces what? Repentance, a metanoia, a changing of the mind where you'll turn around. I wonder today if something's happening in your life and there's guilt. And I wonder if you're dealing with that guilt. I don't do this often at all. In fact, I make fun of a lot of preachers and teachers who do. So cut me some slack today. It's Thanksgiving week. Let me give you sort of a, um, an acronym. It is an acronym for guilt. The good and the bad. I thought of it this way. Good guilt. God's unique, intentional, loving treatment. You note takers love that, don't you? God's unique, intentional, loving treatment. It's the engine light, the check engine light that comes on the dashboard to signify that something is wrong under the hood. And the Bible warns us that when that light comes on, when that guilt comes into your life and to mine, it happens regularly, but when it comes into my life and to yours, we need to pay attention. And if you don't, I, I want to preach all the Bible. I just want to tell you because I, I feel like somebody needs to hear it this morning, okay? But if you don't, it leads to a hardening of the heart and to great self-deception in your life. And you'll get further and further and deeper and deeper into something that's going to be harder and harder to get out of. God's unique. I say unique because you and I aren't good at guilting others. I've tried that. You tried that? It's just poor leadership all around. To try, I try to guilt you. You know, there's a Thanksgiving Eve service tonight at 6 o'clock where Fondren Church in Woodland Hills and the Presbyterian Church across the street and St. Luke's, we're going to have a service at 6 o'clock. I would like to, I'd like you to come tonight. I'd like to guilt you into coming tonight, okay? But y'all aren't coming, are you? I'll be there. If anybody wants to come, you'll get brownie points. Guilt doesn't work well, does it? But God can do it. And he stirs something in us. It's his unique, intentional, loving treatment. Contrast it. Because every good gift that God gives, the enemy distorts that gift. Worldly guilt is grief united in lifelong torment. I know you're laughing at me thinking, there's oh, the preacher exaggerating with an acronym. But the Bible gives us stories of men and women who experience this very thing. And there's a lot of people in this room this morning. And no doubt, most of us, many of us know, long-term, what seems like lifelong torment, what can wash away my sin? Nothing. But you're trying everything. And the enemy... The scripture says is the father of lies, not just a liar, but the father of lies. He's a thief. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. January 2nd, just a few weeks from now, we'll have a wedding here. We're going to marry Emily Hood and her fiance Bennett. They met a year and a half ago in the summer when we moved worship service to the gym so we could renovate this sanctuary. And she was out there greeting, saying, welcome to Fondren Church. And here this tall, handsome guy named Bennett came up and said, good to be here. I don't know exactly what happened after that. Maybe it was lunch or something, but they started connecting and dating, and uh, he asked her to marry him. 
which means he'll be moving her to Huntsville, Alabama, stealing her from us. That makes me sad and makes me mad at him. And being, the, being the, her pastor, I sent him a text that day when I found out they were engaged, and I said, hey, Bennett, you're like Satan. You come to steal, kill, and destroy. But seriously, I'm happy for them. Good luck to them. They'll be back one day for sure, I know. As I pray for his vocational lack of success in Huntsville. So that Emily can come back and be a part of us. Bennett too. But you know, for real. In a a non-silly way, that's what the enemy does. Steals, kills, and destroys. And Paul would say that's worldly guilt, this just feeling bad but never doing anything about it. Your tissues and your teardrops and your lame excuses and your fault finding and your blame shifting, that's not real repentance. I don't know if you can go back. I should have showed this slide earlier, but there's a beautiful passage in Acts 3, 19 and 20, and it says, repent. That's the early church giving the message of Jesus. Repent and believe. And here it says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. What can wash away my sins? And I love this line, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Spiritually dry, discouraged, full maybe of worldly guilt. But this gift, this red light that comes on the dashboard, telling you to stop and to look. And by the way, this process of repentance, it's us sensing and seeing, but then not stuffing. And that's what some of us do. We sense, we see, but we stuff. Or we redefine it. There's no refreshment in that. It's barren and arid and dry, and it gets lonely, and it makes you not want to even come to church and not even attempt to worship and not to be a hypocrite. Who wants that? Anybody? I don't, man. I want the real stuff. I want to to create a community where we can be transparent and we can experience this refreshment from the Lord because we learn to repent. And when things aren't right in our lives, we can do business with God. And we can pray a prayer where where there are tears and maybe, maybe we rip some clothes and we go into the temple and we pray, God, I have sinned against you, but we're also willing to go and to make it right with other people that we've also sinned against that we've been hurt. There's a National Toy Hall of Fame located in Rochester, New York. In the National Toy Hall of Fame, there's about 55 toys that are inducted into the Hall of Fame. The standards are high. There are toys like Slinky, Silly Putty, Monopoly, Raggedy Ann, the Easy Bake Oven, the Jigsaw Puzzle, the Jump Rope. Toys like these that are staples. And one of my favorite, in fact, I looked at it online this morning. It says it was the must-have Christmas toy in 1960. It was the Etch-A-Sketch. You with me? Young, just, there's a generation here going, I've never heard of it. It's an Etch-A-Sketch, and it was invented by a German engineer. It's just this, I'm not going to do well in defining it, but it's just this board, and it had a couple of uh, knobs and you do like this, and this it's like a pencil drawing thing, and you would, I mean, I could only do like stairs. 
And that was about it. I tried to do horses and mountains, and my older sister and parents would laugh at me, and uh, it's why I struggle to this day. <laughs> but the Etch-A-Sketch, it didn't leave me feeling so artistic and so good about myself, but I love the part, and it's on the instructions. If you can't find one, you can read about it. But it says, turn it over and shake it and start again. Mm, I needed that. Who else needs that? And God gives us this invitation. It's so important to him that it's inducted in his hall of fame. It's a, it's a really important tool, if you will. It's not a toy. It's a tool, and it's important, and it's this act when God says through a prophet of old that his mercies are new every morning. It means that this idea of repentance, this guilt that he gives, it really is a gift. It's God's unique, intentional, loving treatment of us. And I wonder if you see it as a gift. For some of you that are down and seemingly out for the count, you need to know his love and grace. You need to know his guilt. One of our values is gospel enjoyment, and we say it often, that the gospel is grace, and grace is a gift, and a gift is to be received. And the gift God has for you is you can turn it over. You can shake it, and you can start again. That's the godly kind of guilt that produces repentance, that leads to salvation without regret. Would you pray with me?